This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 23 with Mike Maselli from Reef Oil & Gas. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobster here and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. We have a fantastic show for you today focusing on energy, oil and gas. Now oil is the most traded commodity in the world and also referred to as black gold. So we have an extremely interesting show for you today where my guest will talk about how you can directly invest in oil and gas projects to create income streams. So this isn't just buying stocks like BP or Shell or Exxon on the New York Stock Exchange. One of the big lessons I've learned is that there are many ways to invest in an asset class, and that's what truly separates the wealth strategies from the rich from what the poor and the middle class do. It's just not the asset class that they invest in, but the way that they invest in these assets. The rich and wealthy invest directly in oil and gas projects, creating income streams, and then benefiting because of the way that they invest from extremely favorable tax treatment. Just on a side note, I am not a tax strategist or a prof tax professional, and neither is my guest today. So please consult your own tax strategist or tax professional because everybody's situation is different. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, in general, there are three types of income that are all taxed differently, right? Um, earn income from your paycheck, which is taxed at the highest rate portfolio income from paper assets, and then passive income from real estate and directly investing in oil and gas projects. The government provides favorable tax treatment for people that provide housing, jobs, food, and energy. If you want to reduce your tax liability, you need to provide more housing for others, more jobs through businesses that you start, and provide more food and energy for others too. Directly investing in oil and gas, you're taxed on passive income. And there are other favorable tax treatments with this investment as well before, after, and during the investment is made. If you invest in oil and gas through paper assets in the stock market, like I'd mentioned, you know, BP and Shell stocks, you're taxed at portfolio income. If you invest in these oil and gas stocks in your 401k, you'll be taxed at earned income levels when you start withdrawing that money from this plan. So you can already see that difference in tax treatment just in those three different areas of how you earn your money. If you understand that it's not the asset class, but how you are invested in that asset class that determines whether you'll be wealthy, middle class, or poor, the way that you look at assets and wealth will start to change dramatically. My guest today, Mike Maselli, the CEO of Reef Oil and Gas Companies in Richardson, Texas, will talk to you about the strategy of direct investing in producing oil and gas wells that provides monthly cash flows and terrific tax benefits. Mike Maselli is the founder and chief executive officer of Reef Oil and Gas Companies. In his 26 plus years as CEO, Mike has led the growth of the organization from a three full-time employee startup company in 1987 to a much larger oil and gas production and property acquisition company today now serving the investment needs of thousands of oil and gas investors across the United States, Mike's vision and business acumen has made him one of the most influential CEOs in the oil and gas investor community. With Mike's leadership and determination, Reef will continue to offer energy investment opportunities that will have the potential to generate successful results. Before we are joined today by Mike Maselli, just a reminder that you can download any book for free when you try Audible for 30 days. You can grab your free trial and audio book download at cashflowninja.com forward slash free book download. And my friend Manish Bindi from Gold Silver for Life is hosting a free webinar, Three Steps to Cashflow Gold and Silver. Manish is showing people how to use their gold and silver holdings to create income streams. You can register for the webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver webinar. All of our past shows and show notes are available at CashflowNinja.com, and you can also join our community and mailing list by texting the word CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. 
If you sign up to join our community, I will email you three of the top 10 books ever written on building wealth. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to the Cashflow Ninja podcast with your host, MC Lobsher. You must be prepared to ignite. Mike, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, MC. Can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, actually, I am a, uh, I want to say around a 30-year veteran of the oil and gas business. Um, actually, I started uh, in the business in around 1978 when I worked for Tennessee Gas. Uh, Tennessee Gas is a uh, transmission company, and uh, so I always like to say I started from the bottom up because obviously they had pipe uh, pipelines that were underground, and most of the work that we did were fill work. But uh, in 1978, I moved to Dallas and uh, started working for some small independent companies up in North Texas, and uh, worked in in of course oil in 1980 had gone up to around $42 a barrel, which at today's dollars is, you know, pretty much equivalent to about an $80 or $90 barrel price. And uh, and then, of course, we saw a downturn in the mid-80s uh, where prices had uh, plummeted all the way down to around $12 a barrel. And, I, and myself and a partner started Reef in 1987. So, you know, when prices were, you know, at one of their lowest points and, you know, we felt it was a good time as far as to, to, to kind of venture out on our own uh, simply because, um, you know, prices were low and there were some some good opportunities out there as far as to pick up good good projects. Uh, Reef basically started out as a as an exploration company. And uh, up in North Texas and West Texas, and then of course we kind of focused our operations in South Louisiana, both onshore and offshore. In the late 90s, we took a two million acre concession in Argentina in the Northwest Basin, and uh, made one of the deepest discoveries in the country at at that time, and uh, was fortunate enough to sell out before uh, the peso collapsed. And uh, then of course in uh, we went to Canada and drilled, at the time, one of the deepest horizontal uh, wells that had been drilled to date. And, uh, and you know, since then, we have been both buying, uh, producing properties as well as participating. I guess over the last four or five years, we've primarily focused in North Dakota, and uh, we participated in the drilling of about 900 wells. We owned a small interest under about 47 different operators. But to date, uh, the company has owns an interest in or has owned an interest in right at about 3,000 wells and uh, over 11 states. Investing with you guys is a, is a lot different than investing just in oil and gas stock like BP and Shell. So can you please share how investors invest with you guys and the difference between direct investing, what you guys are offering to the marketplace and the value that you offer in contrast with uh, investing in just in oil and gas shares and stock? Yeah, well, it's a different investment altogether. And, and uh, you know, here you're actually participating in the physical drilling of the wells. Of course, our company, we have a full exploration staff. I mean, we have both geologists engineers uh reservoir engineers uh and we we basically do everything that a major company would do we develop our own prospects uh we buy prospects from third parties uh and we physically put together the actual partnership where uh investors come in alongside of us and we physically drill the wells the investors uh, get the benefit from the IDC or intangible trilling cost deductions that the federal government offers. And uh, when we make a discovery, of course, the investors, we sell the oil at the wellhead to a third party purchaser. And then, of course, uh, once that oil is sold, uh, then, then the investors receive revenue. Uh, we try to pay on a monthly basis. Uh, some of our funds that are that are smaller funds pay on a quarterly basis, but the majority of them pay uh, distributions on a monthly basis to the partners. 
You've mentioned ta the tax treatment of direct oil and gas investment. So le let's just talk about that. Obviously, the, the government uh, provides tax incentives and favorable tax treatment for people that provide housing um, and energy and food, etc. Um, now, neither of us are obviously tax strategists or tax professionals. Um, so for those listening, please consult your tax strategist, your personal tax professional with this because everybody's situation is different. So now that we have that out of the way, what are some of the tax benefits and favorable tax treatments that these direct investments in oil and gas receive? Well, MC, that's probably one of the, the most attractive parts and one of the main reasons why uh, both individual investors and financial planners, uh, you know, put their clients into direct participations in energy projects. Uh, some people use it for tax planning. Uh, you know, others, the, the IDC deductions or the intangible drilling cost deductions aren't, in, aren't as important. Uh, but we think it's, you know, it, it's definitely a plus. It's, it's, it's an, uh, been enacted by the government, probably uh, the U.S. government, for the last 35, 40 years. Uh, it was it was set up originally for uh, investment in the energy business. So you know, people or investors were willing to take the risk to develop and and produce oil and gas here in the United States. So oil and gas is is really the kingpin of all tax shelters uh, that that's still remaining. And, uh, for example, if you participate in the direct drilling of a well, uh, you can write off all of the intangible items. And what I mean by that is, of course, your leases are a tangible item. The pipe you put in the ground are tangible. So those have to be amortized uh, unless the well is unsuccessful. Now, if the well is a, is a, is a dry hole and, you know, at the, at the end of the drilling process, then the investors are able to write off 100% of their investment against their active income. Uh, if it is a success, successful well, uh, for example, in some of the, the uh, new horizontal wells that are being drilled around the world, you have intangible drilling cost deductions both on the drilling side, which represents probably 80% of the cost that you put into the investment, and then, of course, also when – companies go in and frack the wells, uh, that again is an a large intangible item that is used in the completion of those wells. So the what we call IDC deductions, which are the intangible drilling cost deductions, are, are very attractive. Now, one of the risks, of course, when you're drilling and you just uh, pointed it out is hitting a dry hole. So not finding oil or gas. How do you guys manage that risk for the, in the investors in these investments? Well, over the years, we have tried to develop different products because not every investor in energy wants to assume the risk of drilling exploratory wells. Um, exploratory, if you're physically drilling an exploratory well, say a, what we call a rank wildcat in our industry is some of the jargon uh, that is used where there's not any production surrounding you and you're just going out trying to find a new reservoir of oil and gas under the ground, then the odds are a lot higher as far as having to drill unsuccessful wells. In fact, you know, you could drill six or seven dry holes before you made a discovery. Uh, there's different forms of risk in this business, and, of course, that, that's one of the most extreme forms, which we try not to do any exploratory drilling anymore. Uh, we focus primarily on what we call Developmental drilling, um, you know, where you have existing production surrounding you. Uh, basically, you are, you know, drilling in an existing field. Uh, so your odds, while there's always a risk, and you pointed that out, and, and you know, anytime you drill a well, there's always a risk that you could have an unsuccessful project. Uh, but in some of the more of the unconventional plays or more of the developmental type of plays, uh, you know, you're going to find oil and gas, you know, the majority of the time. Uh, the question is, how do you find commercial oil and gas? Because I always like to tell people there's a difference between having a successful project but having a commercial project. And that's where 
you know, you really have to do your homework and you have to have both reservoir engineers and and engineers to, to go in and to figure out, you know, what other wells have produced in the area, uh, you know, because you don't want to go into an area where, where say, several of the surrounding wells produced a very small amount of oil and someone's telling you that, you know, you're going to find five times that amount of oil. That usually doesn't happen. So you want to make sure that that you do all of the necessary engineering and the and the due diligence on the project before you before you participate in it. And that's where a company like ours comes in. I mean, a lot of people can drill oil and gas wells, but but the bottom line is is that you have to you you have to be drilling in the right areas. And and I think that's how we do a good job of trying to manage the risk because we do a lot of due diligence. That still does not guarantee you know every well is going to work out. But what I like to tell people is that you you have to basically if your goal is to participate in oil and gas you want to make sure you spread that risk out over a number of wells and not go in and just participate in one because if you're only planning on going out and and doing one well and uh you need to just save your money because uh but if I've gotten a certain amount of money to spend say I want to spend you know over the next 5 years I want to spend Two hundred fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars, whatever that amount may be, I want to put it in over four or five projects because I'm going to have a better odds of making it. Now, if I if I don't want to take any risk, then then you can buy existing production. That's you know actually what you're doing is you're buying cash flow and it's more of a price play. And we offer both of those types of products because we know that not everybody wants to to explore for oil and gas. Now, the tax treatment is different when you're buying producing properties because physically what you're doing is you're buying cash flow. And uh, and in this market, that's not a bad thing to do because obviously now you have the benefit of lower oil and gas prices. So you basically are, you know, you're, you're play, it's more of a price play. So if you can buy crude in the ground at, you know, $50 a barrel and hope over the next, you know, if, you, if your outlook is at all over the next several years, it's going to be back up to $75 or $80 a barrel, which I think is pretty reasonable, then, you know, you want to sell or divest of that investment at that time. So usually what we like to do is to hold a property uh, for five to seven years, and uh, depending on what prices are, then we, we want to exit that property at that time if we're buying production. Doing some research for our interview, too, I was looking at the different drilling techniques that's used today and the drilling techniques used previously. So what makes today's drilling techniques more effective than those used in the past? Well, it all depends on the reservoir. You know, when you come down to it, when you talk about drilling techniques, I mean, you have uh, horizontal drilling, which has been the buzzword for the last four or five years, and hydraulic fracturing. And where that application is used, now, horizontal drilling has been around for a long time, 40 or 50 years. Uh, fracturing has been around for 40 to 50 years as well. Uh, we have improved on that technology over the last, since around 2008, when these unconventional plays began to take hold. Now, what an unconventional play is, is actually uh, the layman way I like to explain it is that basically you're drilling into the hydrocarbon kitchen in most cases because usually if you just imagine layers in a cake and you have certain layers that are, that have very porous sand and 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 uh, or old riverbeds that run that are now covered up by you know or covered or underground that's usually where your hydrocarbons accumulate is somewhere where we you have good porosity and permeability and and the difference is in these in these hydrocarbon kitchens they're usually a very organic rock that is under the ground that has very low permeability if you look at a sponge and you ever put a sponge under 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 you know running water the sponge will fill up with water but it's very difficult to move fluid through that sponge and the reason being is that sponge has good por- good porosity it doesn't doesn't have good permeability because it's a real dense rock and so where the technique of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing came about is physically you wanted to drill into that sponge and then you wanted to 
go horizontal for a certain distance because you're opening up more of the reservoir, and then you come in with sand and water, and you pump that in under extreme pressure, and of course your sand and your water goes out and forms little fingers inside of this sponge, and when you release the pressure, uh, when you stop pumping pressure into the ground, then that rock tries to relax and close back up, and where the sand comes in or the different propping mechanisms that they use, when that rock tries to relax, then basically it, it can't because you pump sand into it or some kind of propping which keeps those little fingers open. And that allows you to create permeability into the rock, which you're able to get that out. So these reservoirs, for example, the Bakken in North Dakota, which is a, is a, is a large reservoir, it covers roughly about, a, it's about 125 miles uh, north-south and about 250 miles east-west. And so you have a very vast area of this rock, this real hard rock, that, that's difficult to get oil out of, and that's where these horizontal wells have been drilled over the last year. And it, it really does two good things, is that it, it basically reduces the footprint that you have on the surface. So from an environmental standpoint, uh, you have, you have, you can produce, you can drill more wells off of one pad, so you don't have the environmental impact if you would. Uh, for example, in the Bakken over the last six or seven years, there's been over 10,000 wells drilled up there. You can imagine if you were drilling just vertical wells and you're drilling 10,000 of them, how much environmental impact you have on the surface. But when you're drilling a horizontal well, you're drilling down 10,000 feet, which is roughly two miles, and then you're drilling 10,000 feet horizontal. So you're, you're physically drilling almost four miles of drilling and uh, you're drilling it you know from one pad and and uh, technology has continued to increase where uh, now you can drill five or six of these wells off of one pad so it's a very it's very good and of course you open up more of the reservoir you get more of the oil that's under the ground and basically you have a smaller footprint on the surface. Right, and you'd mentioned environmental impacts. Now, what strategies do you have in place that reduces the environmental impacts of the oil and the gas extraction? Well, it's, it's pretty much what I just said because the technology has changed today where they – now, we're talking physically about uh, the unconventional plays, and, and uh, which I mean unconventional are the very large reservoirs we just spoke about. Right. And uh, so technology has continued to change and uh, has continued, you know, we, we've done a very good job in the industry of on the drilling side of it. Uh, hydraulic fracturing is continuing to improve. Uh, we've gotten our cost down. And one of the ways that the cost down is and also the environmental impact has been reduced is by using what they call walking rigs. And these are rigs that physically you know, have big, a lot of cases have big pads on the bottom that they physically can walk on the ground. So you reduce cost by not having to lower the rig every time you get through drilling the well. Uh, you reduce cost because you're going to drill six wells at one time. And how you do that is that you basically, you know, in the drilling of a well, you're drilling a surface hole, then that surface hole goes down to cover all of your fresh water zones, uh, your, your drinking water zones. So the first phase of a well is to drill through that, through those fresh water, through those, those water zones, and then you basically cover that with pipe and cement. So you cement it all the way back to the surface so you don't have any contamination of, of any fresh water zones. And, and one of the things here in the U.S., I mean, probably the U.S. is one of the most environmentally sensitive. I mean, we have strict environmental laws that the that the energy industry uh, has to abide by. And so, you know, these are the ways that you do that. And then the second phase of the well, so in order to drill, to reduce the environmental impact on the surface, you'll drill, you'll drill, say you're drilling six wells and you got them lined up in a vertical line. And that first hole is a thousand feet deep. So you go in and you drill the first hole 
you walk the rig over to the second hole, you drill that thousand foot to cover the freshwater zones in the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. And then you come back and then you drill your vertical hole and that hole may go all the way down to 10,000 feet or 9,000 feet. So then you come back and you drill all six of those wells and you drill all six of those vertical holes at one time and that's simply by using a rig so it walks back and forth between those those rigs and that allows you to reduce your cost because you, you basically can drill those holes at the same time. You can buy all your pipe at the same time for six wells. So in a lot of cases, you know, you can save 20 to 25 percent of the cost. Uh, the environmental impact is that you only use one set of tank batteries on the surface to, to hold the oil once you're producing it, but you can physically use, you know, you, you, when you, we drill with what we call drilling mud, and drilling mud uh, basically is a, it's a chemical, it's mixed primarily water, but you do have some chemicals in it, and the drilling mud does two things. It lubricates the bottom of the bit uh, when you're drilling it, but also it brings all the cuttings back to the surface. And all of these are done in, in tanks where basically they are, in, you know, they are enclosed in steel tanks. So by having this walking rig walk back and forth, you're able to, to, to reduce that environmental impact by, by using one set of tanks. Now, business and investing are team sports, and you've mentioned that you have a very strong team in place consisting of out of geologists and the other team members in the areas needed to execute on oil and gas opportunities and projects. Can you walk us through a project of yours from the start where another party is bringing you an opportunity or where you have identified the opportunity yourself? Yeah, in fact, we have just um, – now, this particular project is going to be a developmental project in Louisiana. Uh, we actually – was brought this opportunity from a what we call a generator or a generating geologist. Uh, the person that brought it to us uh, used to work for a large, a major company, and basically what what his focus is is to go into areas and and look for developmental opportunities where you may have been an existing field, but you have a a uh, enclosure in that field that was not drilled previously that contains hydrocarbons. Now, how you find those opportunities is a lot of times there, you know, you'll take three-dimensional, what we call three-dimensional seismic. Uh, three-dimensional seismic, I like to explain, it's kind of like a, a sonogram, basically. What you're doing is you're, you're putting sound down through the earth and, and you have phones on the surface that allows you to see what's going on under the ground. And uh, it allows you to see what we call structures or some type of fault enclosure where the rock has shifted and all of a sudden you've got a separate compartment there that has oil and gas in it. And uh, so first off, we in this particular instance, we basically would send our geologist or our geophysicist in this case, we we use a gentleman that, um, you know, we've used in the past that's an independent geologist and geophysicist. And, of course, uh, we, we send him down and have him do independent mapping of the generator or the person that brought us the opportunity. And we determine that, one, that the uh, separate compartment is there. We can see it on the, on the 3D seismic. And then what we wanted to determine, okay, well, we know there's a separate compartment there, but the critical issue is, did this compartment move or did it, did it, was it created after the oil had been produced or was it there prior, prior to the oil being produced? Because if it was created by some kind of geological event under the ground after the oil had, after the oil had been produced in that existing field, then it would already be depleted. And uh, so the oil would have already been produced out of it. So we we went in and, and uh, first we determined that. And then we went back and looked at the chronological uh, of when all the wells were drilled in the area. And uh, we looked at from the beginning of when the wells were drilled all the way up until the, the well in this particular compartment, uh, which was which was on the edge of it, you know, had stopped producing in 2014. So. Just think of a hill under the ground. Well, oil is lighter than water. Usually oil sits on top of water. Natural gas sits on top of oil. So if you have an underground uh, structure, an underground hill, and that hill basically is, is, 
is full of hydrocarbons. And if you have a well that was drilled on the side of that hill, then if you can move higher up on top of the hill, you you still have remaining reserves in that in that reservoir. And so those are the type of things we try to determine before we decide to move forward. And then our reservoir engineer, uh, which is a basically an engineer that looks at the size of the compartment, what we try to do is we take this particular compartment, you know, the well that was drilled was right on the edge of it, produced about 250,000 barrels of oil. The play is, is that we can, you know, from looking at the 3D seismic, we can move higher up on the hill and we should have about 700,000 barrels of oil remaining in that reservoir. So what the reservoir engineers try to do is they go in and they put all that oil back in that had been produced in that container. And then you determine from the size of it what the thickness of the sand is. You want to know how thick the sand is, what the porosity in the in the reservoir is. The porosity is basically your your, if you take a jar and you fill it full of marbles, the little spaces in between the marbles is the porosity. And then, of course, permeability is like the capillaries in your arm that move oil and got veins that move oil and gas. That you got to have permeability to move it through there. And so we try to do we we look at that aspect of it, and then they determine how much oil is remaining. And then, of course, our drilling engineer, we go out and we we basically in this particular instance. There's only 45% of the well remaining. The other, the other 55% has already been placed with other investors. And so we review the drilling contracts, the cost to drill and, and determine from that standpoint. And then that goes to our analysts, which our analysts, they, they look at it and determine, you know, what amount of money is it going to take to pay the well out? Uh, what amount of money is is it going to take to pay the investment? How much oil is it, you know, versus at today's dollars? Now, one thing you you really can't get a handle on is what is the price of oil going to be? And so, what right. most companies use is that they use the standard of, um, you know, West West Texas Intermediate is kind of the standard crude. If you open up the newspaper today, you know, you probably see it's trading for about fifty one dollars a barrel. But you look at the strip prices, and the strip prices is basically a estimate of what they, you know, if you were to sell oil today to someone that, I mean, if, if, if I wanted to buy oil, if I was a corporation and I wanted to buy oil two years from now, if I wanted to buy a 1,000 barrels a day, I can look at that strip price, and I would pay that price for it today to be delivered in two years. So the strip price is what a lot of companies use to estimate the price. And that determines what your return is going to be. And usually what we like to see on these types of plays is a potential for a, about a three to five to one return to our partners. And uh, and all, it met all of that criteria. And, and uh, so we are going to move forward with that particular project. But that's how an exploration well works. Oh, great. Thank you for sharing that. So let's talk about specifics. What are the minimum amount that investors need to invest with you guys? And do they need to be accredited investors? Well, on our, our particular projects, um, that varies depending on whether or not it's a uh, drilling project versus a, a income fund project uh, and depending on the cost of the projects. But we do sell under the Reg D 506C registration where we work with accredited investors only. Uh, now, we have done both public funds in the past and, and obviously, uh, but the 506Cs, it's, you know, they're less expensive to do. And, and uh, but we do work with accredited investors and an accredited investor is an investor in, that has, Theoretically, $250,000 a year income or has a million dollars net worth uh, or has made $250,000 over the last two or three years or has a million dollars net worth. Uh, so investment ranges vary depending on the project. Usually uh, what we will sell is a $100,000 unit with a $25,000 minimum. We have done as low as you know ten or $15,000 minimums. So it really depends on on the different types of projects that we do. Now let's talk about the oil and gas industry right now. How does the low price of oil affect investors or potential investors? Well, again, it depends on when you, <laughs> you know, if you if you've been active in the business as we have. I mean, it's it's a lot like 
the stock market or any other type of business. I mean, basically, you you know, if you bought oil back when oil was a hundred dollars a barrel, you're you're probably not making a very good return on your investment right now. And uh, right. And so, a lot of people, obviously, we've seen that in the industry. I mean, we've seen close to a hundred companies go bankrupt over the last. Uh, year to year and a half, and and there's probably you know some more to follow, but uh, so so as an investor, uh, you really want to try to you know it's like I said, I mean if I if if I'm an investor, I want to I don't want to go out here and just invest one time. I mean if that's my attitude, then I'm going to give it one shot, and and uh, and that's going to be it. Then I would I would tell that individual that you know probably you need to you know, buy bonds or something along those lines that obviously has a lot less risk because uh, oil and gas, you know, as as we've said earlier, I mean, there are inherent risks involved depending on whether you're drilling or whether you're buying production. And, of course, if you're buying production, you bought cash flow. And, and over the last year or so, the cash flow has been very low. But if you buy in today and you look for the, you know, obviously the, the, the valleys of when prices drop, I think an investor has a, a, a lot more opportunity today because you know if you're buying oil at a hundred dollars a barrel you're drilling at a hundred dollars a barrel then the economics have to be a certain point for you to make money and they have to stay in that hundred dollar a barrel range and and what we've seen over the last couple of years now you can buy hedges that hedge against that downside but usually hedges are only last for a couple of years and that's what we've seen in the industry you know, I look back when I got into the industry in 1987, and I look back over that uh, time frame. I mean, we've seen a lot of ups and downs in the price of oil. I mean, we've seen, you know, the uh, you know the air overproduction in the early 80s, which caused the price to drop from $42 a barrel down to $12 a barrel. We saw, you know, a number of times the Asian crisis that obviously we, we saw other dips in the prices. So there's been about 15 dips in prices. And of course, prices have already always recovered. And they will do that again this time. And we're already starting to see that effect. I mean, this time, of course, we saw Saudi Arabia and, 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 and really technology, you know, cause, uh, a, a, an oversupply in oil. So basically, you know, we have had to wait for that oversupply to slowly get worked off because obviously investment stopped in the U.S. and and uh, so prices, you know, dropped down to as low as $27 a barrel and now they're starting to recover. And uh, and we think they'll recover, you know, back up into the 80s over the next, you know, couple of years and and it's what a kind of our outlook is. I don't know that we'll reach $100 a barrel, but we're certainly going to reach back into the 70s or $80 a barrel. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's it's a good time to enter, as I said early earlier, because one, whether you're drilling wells, if you're drilling wells, you're drilling at much lower cost now. You have lower acreage cost to purchase the acreage. Uh, you know, so you have lower completion cost uh, because everyone's you know that's working obviously are working for reduced costs as prices recover. Of course all the prices of your services start to go back up. And when oil was $100 a barrel, you know, service companies were basically looking at it and saying, you know, we have to put on all these people, so our cost of services has gone up. And now they've, they've dropped. I mean, you could drill a well today, uh, a well that was costing you $10 million back in a couple of years ago, you could probably drill today for about $7.5 So obviously the cost is less. Uh, and, uh, of course, the price that you're getting for the product is less as well. But uh, but buying production, you, you know, you're, you're buying it at today's prices. So if I'm an investor where I'm buying cash flow, uh, now I've, I've, I feel I've got a, a, another advantage because, obviously, I don't have to depend on prices being at $100 a barrel to make money. Uh, you know, I've got room to, to, to basically invest. And then, of course, as prices go up, which is going to increase the value of my investment, obviously, and that all depends on when prices go up. Because remember, oil and gas is a depleting asset. I mean, basically, you're depleting one the day you put it online. It's it's, it's you're you're just slowly depleting that asset. And right. uh, so, uh, but by buying at today's prices, if I can buy crude in in the ground for you know forty dollars a barrel, and my price goes to eighty, then 
Um, you know, and we've been very successful in doing that in the past and uh, as well on our income fund products is to is to buy low and, of course, sell when when prices recover. So I think it's a great time to invest myself. Now, Mike, in business and investing, what's the best advice that you've ever received and the most important lesson that you've learned on your journey? Well, (laughs) in this business, you learn lessons every day. And (laughs) (laughs) I think having a clear strategy on, you know, I think everybody from every industry and any type of investment, whether it be real estate or oil and gas or, 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 you know, any type of investment obviously is knowing when to get in and of course when to get out. It's always good to be able to go in with a strategy where, you know, I'm, I'm not tied to that strategy, but the bottom line is if I'm buying production or if I'm drilling wells and I hit a good well, I want to hold that well until, you know, to get the get the upfront cash flow off of it and try to look at a strategy to, to exit it in five to seven years and and uh, redeploy my capital. I think that's one of the main things that you that you need to look at in this business. Okay, well, I I understand the tax advantages. I understand that you know the risk. And hey, I go out and I, I invest my money, and and we make a nice discovery. Uh, again, you know, it is a depleting asset, so you want to try to look at when to exit that asset. And uh, so that's always a good strategy to look at. Secondly, is is that uh, when you're buying oil at high prices, you want to definitely hedge. When you're buying at low prices, you you want to try to cover your downside or or investing. So you want to use some type of hedging strategy. Uh, and you can, you know, you can get costless collars. I mean, you can buy floors. Um, you know, if you're buying a floor, which what I mean by that is, say for example, today if I'm if I if I make a discovery and and uh, you know I'm producing oil and say I want to buy a forty dollar floor, well a forty dollar floor may cost me fifty cents a barrel or forty five cents a barrel, but it covers that downside in case you do you know we do run into a a lower market again and and uh, problem that a lot of people saw back when oil was a hundred dollars a barrel when you're when you're trying to lock in hedges and the reason why a lot of companies and didn't lock in long hedges is because what we call the forward curve, when you look out two or three years when prices are high, that curve is dropping. And now when prices are low, it's 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 increasing. So you want to make sure you got some kind of hedging strategy in place to cover your downside once you make the discovery. I like that. Very strategic in your approach, strategic in your execution, and strategic in your exit strategy, and then protecting the downside. Fantastic. Now, a question I ask of all of my guests is, if you cannot pass on any money to your children and grandchildren and you're only allowed on to pass on five principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? Well, I always tell people, and it's kind of like you know, one of my mentors and one of the guys that, that I look at, uh, you know, and I've, I've, I've done speaking for, Robert Kiyosaki, and, you know, I've consulted with him on energy. And and one of the main things, you know, that I've picked up from him is that you want to have a good team. And uh, basically you want to have, uh, you know, your, your you want to set up your corporations correctly. You want to have a good attorney. You want to have a good tax advisor. Uh, you need to have a good strategy as far as as you begin to make money to, to understand, uh, you know, how you want to set your corporations up, that you don't have personal liability for it, and and you want to make sure that your family's protected and, your, you know, everything that you've worked on and you've built, you want to make sure all of that is, is protected. So you got to have a good team. You also have to have, if you invest in real estate, whether you're investing in real estate, you invest in oil and gas, or you invest in the stock market, you want to pick one a person that you feel has, has been successful in, in those, in those uh, investments and uh, you want to basically, you know, work with those groups and try not to, to spread out too much because obviously you, you, you start to lose, you know, everybody has a good story. I mean, the bottom line is what I like to say right. is, you know, when you're talking to salespeople or you're talking to people about investment, I mean, everybody has their own strategy and you need to figure out and kind of follow your own 
basic principles and, 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 and because nobody can do it, you know, nobody understands your personal uh, risk tolerances or your personal investments better than you do. And, and you need to make sure people, I mean, things make sense to you in order before you do it. So that's kind of my strategy and that I've lived by. And, I, and, and when you create enough wealth, uh, then t- try to protect that wealth. It's it's one thing to try to be greedy, but you know the bottom line is you need to have some type of asset protection in there. That 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 as as time moves on, you're you you're constantly reevaluating your position, and and uh, and when you get enough wealth, you want to make sure that obviously you're not still out there trying to just be greedy and it, you know and it, and because you make mistakes then. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Are there any books that you would recommend to my audience if they wanted to learn more about the oil and gas industry? Well, I actually have a book that I'm finishing now, uh, of course. Oh, great. Uh, that I should have on the, you know, out here in the next uh, probably 90 days, I'm, I'm hoping. But uh, anyway, I've been working on it. and, and uh, But there are plenty of good books out there, depending on the reader. Uh, if you're more of a technical reader, then obviously the prize is is probably one of the best oil and gas books to understand the history of the industry. Uh, and I think it's Daniel, uh, uh, but it's called The Prize. And then he has a new book out that I've read, but his books are long. But but it gives you a complete understanding of the industry itself and where it's gone from from basically in the early 1900s to where we are today. And uh, so there's a lot of good books out there as far as uh, on oil and gas, but uh, that would be one that that I would that I enjoyed reading. And it's a very long book, but it it does tell the historical point of view of it. And then of course uh, there's some books out there that talk about um, you know kind of the reserves that are in the world. One of the things that you know the U.S. knows very little about is how much <clears throat> actual reserves that Saudi Arabia has or or uh, because, you know, once the Saudis basically, you know, remove the U.S. companies and kind of nationalize uh, Aramco, then they stop reporting their reserves. And when you look at a country like Saudi Arabia that basically has four to five hundred wells in the entire company, as opposed to a country like the U.S., we've probably got seven hundred thousand wells. It's it's a big difference. Their reservoirs are much more efficient, but their reservoirs obviously have been producing for a very long period of time, um, and it's very difficult to determine, you know, kind of what type of reserves they have left. And and uh, so, you know, stuff like that that you that you basically, if you're trying to predict what the price, I mean, what oil is going to do in the future, because let's face it, I mean, you know, hydrocarbons are probably going to be a, a is the most cheapest form of energy compared to solar, compared to wind, uh, and probably will continue to be for the next 25 to 30 years. And uh, so we will continue to use oil and gas and natural gas and, and uh, until at some point when, uh, you know, the renewables become more efficient or there's some type of new technology out there that makes them actually profitable. And uh, so understanding you know, kind of what the philosophy is on oil and how much oil is left in the country, uh, in the world, I'm sorry. We use right now in the world probably 82 million barrels of oil a day. Wow. In the United States, uh, you know, if you look at countries like China, you look at uh, India, which is kind of the sleeping giant uh, out there. I mean, China has over a billion uh, people in the population, and they uh, are probably the third largest producer I mean, largest con- consumer. If you look at the U.S., we have a population of roughly 300 million people, but we use more oil in the world than anyone else. Uh, right. And uh, you know, but you look at India. India has over a population of over a billion people, and they are they use very little hydrocarbon. So as those countries continue to develop in the future, uh, I know we've seen a downturn in, in Asian in Asia right now, but the bottom line is it. You know, as those countries continue to increase and more and more people drive cars or use technology that uh, are all hydrocarbon based, uh, 
technology that uh, you know the price of oil is going to continue to rise over over the years to come and until there's a, some other form of energy out there that that's going to be able to start taking its place and to date that hasn't happened i mean a lot of people preach wind and a lot of people preach solar and of course we've seen over the last year that several of the government's solar projects have gone bankrupt uh, the largest being Solyndra, I think, which is a $450 million bankruptcy that the taxpayers had to pay for. And right. uh, so that hasn't happened yet. And so hydrocarbons are going to continue to be a, a very strong part of our commodity, I mean, of our, our economy. Now, Mike, how can my audience learn more about you, your company, and keep informed of all of the projects that you and your company, Reef, are involved with? Well, you can actually give us a call at uh, 1-877-915-7333. You can either talk with uh, myself or my brother. Uh, you just give us a call. And, and uh, my name is Michael Maselli. Of course, my brother, he uh, handles the relationship with a lot of our investors. And, and uh, you know, so his name is Paul Maselli. Uh, and, of course, we have a complete staff of people that, obviously, we work with both financial planners, and private investors. Um, or you can go to our website at www.reefogc.com, and uh, you can learn more about us there. Perfect. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your journey and providing so much value to my listeners. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, MC, for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Mike Maselli, the Chief Executive Officer of Reef Oil and Gas Companies. Remember to grab your free audiobook download from Audible. You can download any book for free when you try Audible for 30 days. You can grab your free trial and audiobook download at cashflowninja.com forward slash free book download. And just a reminder to sign up for the free webinar hosted by my friend Manish Bendy from Gold Silver for Life, Three Steps to Cashflow Gold and Silver. Minesh is showing people how to use their gold and silver holdings to create income streams. You can register for this webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver webinar. All of our past shows and show notes are available at cashflowninja.com and you can also join our community and mailing list by texting the word cashflowninja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. If you sign up to join our community, I will email you three of the top 10 books ever written on building wealth. If there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please go to our contact page and send me an email or leave me a voicemail on our SpeakPipe voicemail line. That's our show, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to The Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, cashflowninja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 